Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Hello, it's December 7th, and thank you for joining us for this special edition of NSI Live. I'm Jessica Jones, Deputy Director of the National Security Institute, and today we are excited to host our first of many special episodes. We're here today with the group of NSI fellows to talk about the recently released annual report from the U.S. China Economic and Security Review Commission, which came out last week. The commission was created by Congress in 2001 to monitor and anticipate threats from China, as well as to provide recommendations for legislative and administrative action. Our NSI experts are here to provide their perspective on the report's findings and recommendations, as well as share their insights for how the new administration and new Congress may move forward. First up, we have Katie Musaris, founder and CEO of Luda Security. Katie, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks. After having an opportunity to look over this report, which clocks in at over 500 pages, what do you think the commission got right? I think one of the most important elements that the commission got right was looking at the competitive issues between the United States and China in a holistic manner. And I haven't seen that done, um, you know, in a lot of policy pieces around our dealings with China all in one place. But I do think that it is missing some important components in that holistic view. Speaking of what the report got right, the report's first section focused on China's model of governance and its ambition to export this model across the globe. Dr. Andrea Little-Lombago is Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, can you share your thoughts on this part of the report? Sure. And this is something that I thought was nice to finally see within some government reporting on just how widespread and diffuse this Chinese model is and what the threats are that it poses. And so what the Chinese model doesn't, they don't actually call it digital authoritarianism, but that is what it is. And that's what a lot of the, the folks are doing, the, the think tank research and, and other industry research are really looking at that. And that's you know, Chinese, China's, this, and specifically the CCP's quest for complete information control. And they do that, you know, they started off domestically, but that has expanded and we see them deploying this kind of strategy through a variety of lenses. And it's whether it's through their various domestic champions, like we hear about Huawei in ZTE a lot, um, and other emerging technologies. We see it through their way of leveraging international governmental organizations to try and shape the norms and standards that are going to be basically reshaping the global order going ahead. And then they just do it as well, you know, through various kinds of training practices and just, you know, spreading their own various kinds of technologies across the globe. It has a whole section on Africa and their role there. And so it was really nice uh, it's just not nice, but refreshing to, to see it, it's so well detailed in there because it is, it's extraordinarily multifaceted. The report also highlights how China has worked to establish its leadership in international standardization bodies, which allows them to dominate the development of technologies and ensure the norms and values for how these technologies are deployed. We have Megan Brown, partner at Wiley Rain here. Megan, what do you think about this section of the report? Well, my perspective on these issues comes from sort of the private sector world, which is thinking about how the changes in federal policy affect uh, companies in the U.S. and overseas and their compliance postures, the environment for innovation, and some of the things that folks can do. So the things that jumped out at me right away uh, were sort of twofold in their big section on their key recommendations. The first one that jumped out at me in particular, because it's been an area that I've been doing some work on with NSI, is their interest in standards, technical standards around the world. And they spend a fair bit of time in the report 
talking about China's ambitions to dominate certain technologies and their interest in using global tech standards bodies to advance those interests. And so they have some recommendations in here that I found really notable about a more active United States role, um, in particular, sort of uh, considering that Congress should consider creating an interagency committee on technical standards. And I think that was really interesting. Kitty, I know you've also focused on the technical standards in your work. What do you make of the report's work on this issue? Well, you know, there was an interesting focus on cyber policy and standards. And what was interesting to me as having been a co-author and co-editor of International Standards and having worked in the standards space for over a decade, it's that upon observation, the most dominant forces are not any one nation in standards creation. It's actually the multinational global companies that exert the most influence. So I thought it was interesting that they focused on it but they were looking at it from the ostensible national body capacity and what nationality different chairpersons are, whereas uh, they ignore the influence of, of global multinationals, which, you know, they have offices in almost every country that, that does business. And they absolutely dominate these uh, national one vote, one country type of standards bodies like the ISO standards body um, by having multiple chairs across multiple working groups across multiple countries. So they have influence in every country. So it was interesting that the commission's report seemed to miss the real levers of influence in standards body creation and focused instead on nations and heads of committees and commissions. Continuing to look at the report's finding on how China leverages its influence globally, we also have Giovanna Cinelli, partner at Morgan Lewis here. Giovanna, do you want to tell us more about what the report got right when it comes to the U.S.-China economic relationship? Definitely. And, and overall, the report was incredibly well done, as all of them have been since 2001. But in this particular case, the commission focused on a piece that has not been handled in the past with the same level of granularity and depth. And that is how financial transactions, investments, banking and related outreaches by the Chinese companies and government have resulted in a funding mechanism for China's governmental policies on civil military fusion and expansions in the military defense and intelligence area. And I think this reflects an incredibly finessed understanding on the part of the commission and the parties who testified before the commission about how these different elements interrelate and can have extraordinary impact. Do you think there's anything the commission missed in the report? So the short answer is no. I don't think there's anything the commission missed. And in part, that's because the commission's review process is iterative. They've been looking at a large number of issues over the course of the years that they've been in place. And they've covered pretty much technology, export control, supply chain, cyber defense, emerging tech, and even some financial issues. So I think the commission has done an excellent job in this annual report of continuing to cover a number of these issues, and I don't think they've really missed anything. Thanks, Giovanna. I know we've got some folks there who think the report did miss a few things, though. Katie, what do you think? I think that the commission actually missed an important part about our cyber readiness in general in comparison to China. One, we have a significant population disadvantage when it comes to sourcing our talent pool for cybersecurity. And I think that that needs to not be overlooked, you know, in terms of uh, what we're doing to educate the next generation of cyber defenders and to train and recruit our, you know, next generation of cyber military operations, right? So, um, you know, right now in private, in the private sector, 
we are short, you know, somewhere between three and four million cybersecurity roles that are sitting unfilled, and that's in the private sector. So what I worry about is the fact that we're already at, you know, a severe shortage of jobs uh, that, that can be filled by qualified individuals in cybersecurity. We are um, dependent on technology, especially from an infrastructure standpoint, more so than many parts of rural China, for example. Right. So we are more vulnerable to infrastructure level attacks at, you know, at the cybersecurity level. And, you know, and frankly, we lack we lack the domestic capability and resources and human resources trained to be able to do this. Interesting, Katie. On the issue of the workforce, we have Gentry Lane, CEO and founder of ANOVA Intelligence. Gentry, I know you have an opinion regarding the report's recommendation to amend the Immigration and Nationality Act to allow the denial of non-immigrant visa in certain circumstances, including if an applicant is associated with the foreign government or with the university supporting a foreign government's military efforts. So it's good that they address and propose that Congress amend the Immigration and Nationality Act, but it doesn't go nearly far enough as we need to go. There's a huge, huge problem with um, technology transfer and forced technology transfer and and, uh, technology espionage. And what they're proposing is quite weak and difficult, if not impossible, to enforce. So what would you suggest for addressing this? So, yeah, we know that the Chinese government specifically targets American universities in a number of different ways. So not only is it a brain drain, they're sending their students over to get educated to um, power their technological advances, but they're also targeting university Uh, professors and setting up these thinly veiled associations where I think we need to put a moratorium on Chinese students who are studying technologies that are sensitive to national security for a while. We need to sort things out. Right now, um, we are just, they're robbing the store blind. Um, We are furnishing them uh, with our technology and uh, and cutting edge technologies that are developed in our federally funded national research labs and at universities, and if we want to maintain our um, American dominance and in, in technology, or specifically technologies that are sensitive and tied to national security, the rest that's fine, but anything that's going to um, put our security, put American security uh, at risk, we need to keep that a little more trusted, trusted ecosphere. Megan, early, you shared your take from the private sector's viewpoint. From that perspective, is there anything that the report missed? I think they probably could have spent a little bit more time in their almost 600 pages talking about the private sector role here. They do spend a fair bit of time talking about trade and investment and things of that nature, but I thought they could have grappled a bit more with that sort of corporate diplomacy and the role that the private sector plays, as well as recognizing the burdens that some of these China-driven policy changes are having on companies in terms of predictability, right? The past couple of years have had a lot of curveballs thrown at, at corporate America to comply with different new requirements, restrictions. Um, and I think they could have spent a little more time recognizing that there are trade-offs to some of these policy choices that they're recommending for the private sector. Thanks, Megan. Speaking of private sector, and I say that using quotation marks, I want to look at Chinese state-supported companies. Joining us is Andy Kaiser, our principal at Navigators Global, who has looked at the semiconductor subcomponent of this issue. Andy, how do you think the port did in addressing this issue? 
Yeah, well, first, this is like the, the holy grail of uh, what the U.S. should be doing on China. The, you know, China watchers, nerds like myself uh, and the rest on the call kind of wait for this day for this report to come out and kind of go through the 400 pages to see what uh, the CCP is up to around the world and what the U.S. should be doing to counter it. One area I thought could use a little more coverage, though I'm biased uh, after just having written a report for the center of the study of the presidency and Congress on the topic is they address some of the threat of the semiconductor uh, Chinese state-backed companies uh, in China. They don't uh, offer too much, by the way, on the recommendation side. So they actually lay out that this is one of the newest efforts by uh, President Xi and, and the CCP leadership on down to uh, secure control of this, you know, these critical technologies in China domestically to not have to rely on the evil West, uh, particularly the United States. So they do a, a very good job of outlining the, the broad scale of threats from China. But this one in particular is missing a little bit on the recommendation side. We also have here NSA founder and executive director Jamil Jaffer. Jamil, uh, do you think the report missed out on some important recommendations? Well, I think the commission in the past has talked about um, the larger problems that China presents. And in particular, I think what they missed or didn't focus enough on was what the uh, Chinese dominance in markets like PPE and pharmaceuticals means for other areas. So we know the Chinese are seeking to dominate other critical markets going forward, uh, like semiconductors, uh, advanced technologies like AI and quantum uh, you know, we know that they are uh, trying to and have gained a dominant position in the rare earth materials market. These are all areas that are hugely critical to America's success as an innovative economy going forward. And they're doing this all at the same time that they're stealing tremendous amounts of intellectual property out of the United States and other parts of the globe. So when you combine those two trends, China stealing intellectual property, seeking to gain and dominate critical markets at the heart of our innovation economy, it's a very troubling situation for us both from a national security perspective, as well as from an economic perspective. Thanks, Jamil. Andrea, can you speak about your assessment of what's missing in the commission's report? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, you know, a lot of the recommendations, and I understand they're inherently going to be somewhat tactical, but I think even so, they still miss some core components of just how, you know, multifaceted that the competition and the, the national security and economic security threats are from it. And so, you know, on the one hand, what I'd love to see is just moving beyond you know, a lot of recommendations and views that you know, seem somewhat framed from previous eras. And so, you know, a good example of that is just the, the notion that the post-Cold War era is mentioned over a dozen times throughout it. And we're, you know, over 30 years past that time. And, you know, it, we're not in the early 1990s. The world is very, very much different now. And it's changing at a significant pace. And so, you know, maybe starting to think about it as a post-Cold War era, our post-COVID era, uh, looking ahead, even though a lot of these trends were already there prior to the, the pandemic, the pandemic has accelerated a lot of these trends that were already there. And so I'd love to see just some you know, greater creativity and imagination and thinking about how the U.S. can be a leader in this new era and what that looks like and how the U.S. can be a leader as well in bringing together a coalition of digital democracies as a counterweight uh, to, to the Chinese um, the model that's out there. And that could be anywhere along the lines of you know, what, what could the U.S. government do to help you know, spur greater innovation on technology and see that as both a, a national security and an economic imperative. Um, it can be along the lines of supply chains. And I know uh, Jamil mentioned supply chains earlier as well. Um, I, I'd like to see, they, they do a nice job talking about, you know, something like the Manhattan Project for PEP, but it's well beyond just the healthcare issue. That's certainly important. 
But there are a lot of tech concerns and a much broader supply chain concerns with that geographic concentration uh, all going back to China. And so I'd love to see some more coherent legislation focused on supply chain security and how the government can help some of the decoupling that is already starting to happen um, amongst companies. And we're starting to see that over, you know, at, at an even more record pace over the last year or so. The report also devoted a section to addressing China's role in Africa. Les Munson, vice president of the BGR Group and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, also joins us today. Les, how did the report do in handling China's Africa and assistance ambitions? I think, you know, overall, the report obviously does a lot of work on a lot of issues, and it really breaks some ground in that it's bipartisan and uh, concerns are expressed about a lot of issues that we where we really just haven't faced the music with China. So overall, the commission did a great job. I am a little disappointed, though, that they really left unaddressed huge questions on uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is basically their foreign aid program, and how the U.S. foreign assistance programs, of which there are many, and where we spend a lot of money from the U.S. government, and how we should be responding to the fact that BRI is out there undermining democratic governments, open economic systems, and fostering corruption in the developing world. And what it's my my view is that the Chinese program is really damaging the work that our development programs do, because what China is doing is uh, by coming in with massive loans in an opaque fashion and dealing with corrupt human rights abusing governments is promote those things. And it, and it sets out there a marker for bad governments to run to, and they're running away from our values of democracy and human rights. So I, I wish the commission would have taken a much stronger look at how we can use the $30 billion or so that the U.S. government spends every year on foreign assistance as a way to counter these bad moves by China. While the report pinpoints Africa as one main target of China's growing global influence, it only touches lightly upon another area where China is at play, the Arctic. Lori Gordon, a civil systems protection lead at the Aerospace Corporation, joins us to talk about this issue. Lori, what do you make of China's growing Arctic ambitions? So the Arctic, I think, is a really understated opportunity that we all need to start focusing on. And I think this is a real opportunity for the Biden administration, the incoming administration uh, and the new Congress, um, because we're seeing so much Arctic seamelt. And what that means is increased commercial activity by the United States, all of the Arctic countries, but also China with their Polar Silk Road initiative. And so what does this mean for U.S. Uh, national security? Already we're seeing that the Air Force, the Coast Guard, uh, and now the Army are developing their distinct Arctic strategies because they're seeing seeing this risk. And so one signal we're seeing in terms of China and their interests is that they, just like the US's, U.S.'s GPS system, global positioning system, which provides positioning, navigation, and timing for your phone uh, and enables uh, commercial infrastructure development, China has its own satellite system called Beidou. And so Beidou is currently on an inclination over the Arctic where it's actually providing better PNT capability than the U.S.'s GPS system. So this is a big signal that they're looking, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, um, encroach on, uh, you know, Arctic um, opportunity and see, you know, how they can get a power play in that way. So geopolitically, the Arctic is, you know, up and coming. Um, and it's just something that we really need to keep in mind, um, you know, going into the next administration and see how we can address that. Thanks, Lori. The report also focuses on ongoing efforts to modernize the PLA. Megan Amirati, a China's analyst at TechStore, has been following these developments closely. Megan, could you share what you found interesting about the report? Sure. As a defense researcher, I was really focused on how the report characterized the activities of China's military, the People's Liberation Army. 
Uh, and I agree with a lot of NSI's fellows that the report did a really nice job looking at the Chinese military holistically. So it wasn't just focused on evaluating Chinese military technology or their gray zone activities, but it also explored things such as the involvement of the PLA in the PRC's diplomacy in Africa, for example, or, you know, the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, how that is going to have long-term effects uh, for the PLA's access to ports and airfields. So I thought that was a really strong aspect of the report that should be commended. Um, in terms of what I think the report misses, or I would probably say underemphasizes, uh, I think more could be said about some of the surprising accomplishments that the PLA achieved this year, most notably when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic response. Uh, contrary to what we might believe, given the many failures inherent to the outbreak of the coronavirus in China, the Chinese military actually played an unexpectedly competent role in the pandemic response. Do you think the U.S. government is aware of the Chinese military's growing competencies? Have we been keeping a close enough eye on its development? Yes, I think the DOD and other intelligence agencies are aware of the growing capabilities of the PLA. I certainly think it's been a hot topic. But I, I think that the more interesting area that all of the U.S. government needs to focus on is, again, not just the PLA's growing technological capabilities, which are vast and have really been surprising us, but the improvements they've made to the this quality they call jointness, which means their ability to combine multiple forces and work together. Traditionally, the PLA has been focused on ground forces to the detriment of the Air Force and the Navy and other forces. And only four years ago, they started massively reconstructing their army and their and all of their forces to really rethink that quality. And I believe um, the U.S. analysis has been that they've been rather successful in that uh, adjustment quite quickly. Now that we've discussed what the port got right and what our NSI experts wish they had seen, it's time to turn to how the new administration, new Congress might approach and roll out on the report's recommendations. Megan Brown, do you have a sense of what we may see in the new year? I think Congress is going to continue to want to scrutinize this whole area of the recalibration of the relationship with China. I think we will continue to see additions to, say, the National Defense Authorization Act, which we're dealing with right now. Um, but in the future, we're going to see Congress look at these Chinese uh, market issues, in particular, some of the issues around investment, research and development, and working with our allies to promote a more diverse supply chain for, for instance, the sort of IT sector and telecom sector. As for the Biden administration, I think it it really remains to be seen what of this China push they're going to embrace. Um, this commission report is not terribly aggressive, but I think we're going to see in the next few weeks a push from the Trump administration to, to try and lock in some of its China policy. And it'll be very interesting to see what of that Biden might calibrate or roll back and whether he gets pushback from sort of the career national security folks who really are convinced that China's a, a problem long-term. So we'll see. Absolutely. Giovanna, based on the news regarding the Biden administration, are you getting a sense of the future of the U.S.-Chinese relationship? On the administration side, I think it's instrumental and informative to understand that the Biden administration nominees to date 
seem to have been individuals who served at least in the Obama administration, and some have had even a longer term history as public servants across uh, other administrations as well. So I think for those in the cabinet level positions like Janet Yellen, uh, Anthony Blinken, if Michelle Flournoy makes it to Secretary of Defense, I think looking back at the Obama administration policies at that time will indicate how and under what circumstances a Biden administration is going to at least lay the groundwork for dealing with China. I think in a closing comment on this issue, I don't anticipate that the Biden administration would make any immediate changes, but I do think that they're going to level set and reset some of the approaches that were used in the Trump administration. So you don't buy into speculation that there'll be a dramatic shift in policy? I think when you look at the situation, there are going to be some areas where the Biden administration could roll back in a certain sense. And what I mean by that is they may look to continue certain sanctions uh, against Chinese companies, for example, or commentary on China, on the Chinese government. But it may not be for the same reasons, let's say, that the Trump administration looked at it. And so those types of situations on the supply chain side and the cyber side are likely to be challenges for the Biden administration if they're going to try to reset and roll back some of the restrictions. But I do think that over the course of time, a Biden administration is going to take on its own personality and will try to shift away from some of the Trump administration priorities while at the same time preserving some of the current relationship with China. Thanks, Giovanna. That is really interesting. Jamil, what do you think the new administration faces? Well, it's going to be interesting to see whether uh, the National Defense Authorization Act gets done here in the next uh, in the next 60 or 40 days that we have left uh, before the end of the Trump administration. The president is right now saying very publicly uh, that he intends to veto uh, the NDAA, which would be a big surprise, I think, if he in fact uh, actually follows through on that threat uh, because it doesn't include uh, regulation uh, or, or increased regulation of Internet companies. Uh, there's a huge debate about that. Uh, Trying to deal with that, the NDAA is obviously uh, doesn't seem very wise. Uh, and Congress has said they're not going to do that. So the president's teeing up a t- potential veto. That means uh, that the new administration, the new Congress may have to deal with the NDAA uh, when they return um, in 2021. We shall see what happens. Um, I would be surprised if, if the president carries through on his threat. But, you know, President Trump, uh, <laughs> those things are surprises all the time. So it may very well happen that way. So, Jamil, what do you think the Biden administration will and should consider as it determines its China policy? I do think President Biden, uh, President-elect Biden, has made clear uh, that he is focused on American jobs, bringing more American manufacturing back home, uh, you know, bringing more more valuable jobs to the United States. And that's the right approach. Right. The question is, how do you get there? Right. Do you do that through command and control economics? Do you do that through incentivizing the private sector? Is it a combination of those things? Is it a combination of of incentives uh, and, and pushing back on China? In my view, the key is incentives of the private sector pushing back aggressively on China. There's certain things he can certainly do uh, if he wants to lighten up the trade war that we're currently with China. There's certainly things he can do there. But simply, you know, ending ending the current, the current pressure on China would be a mistake um, and focusing only on a couple of key sectors and just labor markets would also be a mistake. We need to incentivize private capital. That's going to be key for the administration going forward. Thanks, boss. That definitely presents another opportunity to explore. I want to thank all of our NSI experts joining us for this special edition podcast. And thank you for all our new listeners. And hold tight. We're going to be hosting another special episode on the report with commissioners from the commission. Please subscribe to NSI Live so you won't miss out on this next exciting conversation. 
Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.